Greetings, Asbury community. I am so excited to come to you today for a Good Friday devotion. It's a blessing for me to be in Hughes Auditorium, and it's a blessing for me to be sharing with you today as well. We're very familiar with the Easter story, but I wanted to talk about another familiar resurrection that we find in Scripture. This is in John chapter 11. Again, a familiar story, the story of Lazarus. And I'm starting in verse 38. It reads, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But, Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you have sent me. When he said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Many years ago, I was working in the banking industry, and I had a colleague who knew that not only was I a Christian, but that I went to church and that my father-in-law worked for a mission organization. And he pulled me aside one day and said, hey, I have a question for you. How much money do missionaries make? Now, this wasn't simply a descriptive question or a curiosity. In other words, his question registered a kind of, because if the price is right, I might be kind of interested. I remember I paused for a moment before I answered his question because I thought, I know the answer, and should I give it, or do I actually address the assumptions, the erroneous assumptions that are underneath his question? And the reason I say this, before we can look at some things, we have to explore, we have to examine the subterrain underneath that which we seek to explore. And I think this is particularly true in the area of miracles that we see in Scripture, and in this instance, the miracles of Jesus Christ. A friend of mine who's a preacher once pointed out that while Jesus healed so many, there was always that next person in line who did not get healed. That was a very powerful thought for me. There was always someone next in line who was not yet healed from Christ. So what does this tell us about healing? What does this tell us about the the character of healing as a medium for Jesus Christ? Well, first, it tells us that we should not understand Jesus as some kind of cosmic doctor or physician alone. Imagine if this were true, Jesus would set up some kind of shop, and we might imagine a manufacturing arrangement where folks could just come through and they're healed over and over again. Rather, while Jesus was a physician of sorts, and while he healed, his overriding identity was rabbi, teacher. Jesus came among us to teach us what the kingdom of God was like, in addition, of course, to being the lamb that was slain to save the world from its sins. A couple of years ago, I was watching a lecture provided by Michael Sandel, a preeminent philosopher at Harvard University. 
Sandel has written a lot about the ethics of biotechnology. And he was in a group, and he made this fascinating comment to the group. He named an anti-aging researcher. And he said that this researcher has made the claim, the audacious claim, that people have been born today that would live to 1,000 years old. In other words, we have technology that exists today and the exponential growth of technology that will occur in the future that will allow individuals to live all the way to 1,000 years old. Staggering thought. But Sandel then said to his audience, how many of you would like to live to 1,000 years old? He didn't have many takers. And he said, all right, let's hear from you. For those in this room that would not want to live to 1,000 years old, why? What are the reasons? Here are some of the things that he heard. Life is interesting because it comes to an end. Someone else in the audience said, life's ending gives it its meaning. Another answerer said, if we have unlimited freedom and choice, the value of things would decrease. In other words, each day would matter less, and the proliferation of choice could be paralyzing. Moreover, even individuals in the room that said they wanted to live to a thousand years old said, but I wouldn't want to live forever. <laughs> and again, Sandel would say, why? Why wouldn't you want to live forever if you could? Now, what can we take away from this? Well, first and foremost, and this is a bit unrelated to our scripture at hand, but I think it's important to point out, Sandel notes that the responses were not scientific, but they were moral in their nature. They were ethical in their character. Individuals in the room used words like meaning and purpose and one's nature in their answers. That's why Sandel said science on its own cannot give us a new theory of human nature. But perhaps more relevant, life lowercase l, life, being biologically operational, is not the ultimate end of our human existence. I love this quote by Thomas Kempis. He says, it is vanity to wish for long life, but to care little about a life lived well. Similarly, the author James Loder writes this. He says, it is evident that human development is not the answer to anything of ultimate significance, but every answer it does provide only pushes the issue deeper back to the ultimate question, what is a life and why do I live it? Jesus was less concerned about existing and he was more concerned about life and living. And not just life, but the abundant life he talks about in John 10.10. 10. I've come that they may have life and have it abundantly. And we can understand that as equidistant, the all-around life, the complete life. Third, as Michael Sandel's question makes clear, would you like to live to 1,000 years old, we see that death infuses meaning into our current and present existence. A friend of mine once said to me, meaning is associated with limits. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that statement. I remember Dave Matthews from the, the Dave Matthews Band. They were very popular when I was a college student. He says, I don't want to die, obviously, but really the wonder of life 
is amplified by the fact that it ends. The wonder of life is amplified by the fact that it ends. And this isn't a thought that's new to him. Of course, this is very much the psalmist we see in Psalm 90:12. Lord, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Now, to be clear, I'm not suggesting that death is a good thing or that it was a part of God's plan. We see Paul say this in Romans 5:12 that just as sin came into the world through one man and death came through sin, so death spread to all because all have sinned. So what does this tell us and what can we conclude, what can we take away from this? First, we see that Jesus has mercy and he acts. This is the idea of Emmanuel. My favorite psalm is Psalm 35, 22, where the psalmist cries out to God and says, Lord, you have seen these things. Do not be silent. Do not be far from us, O God. And the psalmist is crying out to a God who sees and a God who speaks and a God who acts and a God who comes near. This is not the the deist watchmaker. This is not the unmoved mover God. This is not a God tucked away in the corner of the universe unaffiliated with the cares and concerns of our lives. This is the active God. This is the proximate God. God is not on the sidelines. Second, while healing is an important medium, Jesus is a teacher. Now, this resonates with me because I'm at an academic institution, but Jesus is educating our hearts Jesus is teaching us to desire that which is truly desirable, to pursue that which is truly worthy of our pursuit. Jesus is more than a physician. This truth tells us something about Christ's mission. He came to save the lost. He came to set the captive free. He came to demonstrate what God's kingdom is like. Jesus came to give us life, capital L, the all-around life, the complete life, the abundant life. Number three, death makes us time-bound. I don't mean this in an ominous way, but the clock is ticking for all of us. This is from Luke 12. And then Jesus told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store up my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? You see, we are to redeem. We are to take back the time that's been given to us, lest we hear our Creator say, you fool. To really live. And this is not the the life that is a distracted life. Pascal talked about uh, how mankind has this proclivity to constantly distract himself. And this is not the despairing life that Thoreau talked about, that men live lives of quiet desperation. This is the life for us to, the the chief end of man, glorify God and enjoy Him forever, to participate in the life of God. And can I just tell you, this is the life, this is the place where our desires do not come back void. The fulfillment and the gratification and the satisfaction that our hearts truly long for are met in our Creator and met in His community. Finally, number four, 
we know how this story ends. Stories have a, an arc, a narrative arc. We know how this story ends. Christ is not bound by death. This is the great truth that we celebrate at Easter every year, that he is risen. And moreover, this is one of the wonderful truths of Christianity, that God's original motion makes so much of our life possible. Because we were loved, we can love. And because we were first sought, it is that we can now seek. And because we were first known, we can now know. And it is because Christ lived and died and was raised from the grave that we can live. There are other implications for knowing how the story ends. I recently shared with our community right here from the pulpit of Hughes some words by John Newton, not from Amazing Grace, but from another hymn. He says, Begone unbelief, my Savior is near, and for my relief will surely appear. By prayer let me wrestle, and He will perform. With Christ in the vessel, I smile at the storm. This is not just Easter, but it's Easter 2020. <laughs> this is Easter time in the midst of a global pandemic where there's a lot of fear and there's a lot of unsettledness and there's a lot of unpredictability about how we think about our future and the residue that will be left from this pandemic and how it might fundamentally alter key dimensions of our life. But let's not forget our hope. Let's not forget that even in the midst and in the swirl of all these changes, God remains unchanged. What a tremendous hope that we have and that we can smile at the storm in the midst of this hope. This is not condescension. This is simply a trust and a faith that pervades all understanding, an anchor that grounds us amidst the swirling current. Blessings to you this Easter holiday. You are so missed, you are so loved, and you are so appreciated. And I hope you and yours uh, feel all of God's blessing and presence in this time and all the blessing and presence of your loved ones. We may be apart, we are not alone. Happy Easter.